Welcome to the Connect Community Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. We're so glad to have you with us today. If you're ever in our area, come see us in person. We hope today's message inspires you and helps you live better. All right, today's message title is A Good Neighbor Sees, if you're taking notes. Jesus once said that if, if the blind leads the blind, both of them will fall into a pit. It's important for us to understand the element of seeing when we're trying to be a good neighbor, when we're striving and, and aiming at being a good neighbor, because uh, good neighbor has to, being a good neighbor has to do with seeing, not only seeing for yourself, but seeing for others as well. And I do believe that that's an elementary principle that you would first see for yourself and then uh, see on behalf of your neighbor. And so we're going to explore this idea a little bit today intertwined with uh, these commandments that we have been uh, talking about second week now. Jesus was asked at one point, what is the greatest commandment? And it's funny because this person who asked him was a, a religious leader. He was a doctor in the law. And he asked Jesus, uh, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus not only answered with one commandment, he answered with two. He said, well, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But there's a second one that is just like it, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, all the law and all of the prophets, uh, they depend on these two commandments. So when we think about love, loving God, loving people, it is often said that love is blind. Right? And it's typically a diss when you say love is blind, right? We see someone, we see their shortcomings, and the question comes up, how can he put up with her? Or how can she put up with him? Well, love is blind. Love doesn't see. Love is blind. But I think the opposite is actually true. Love does see, but love endures. Love sees. But love is not blind, love is bound. And because it's bound, it endures. And when we love our neighbor, we are really opening our eyes to see. Yes, to see their shortcomings. Yes, to see uh, their faults. But we also get to see their intention. We also get to see that if they missed the mark, they weren't aiming to miss the mark most of the time. They were aiming to do the right thing. They're striving, their potential. And I find it very important that Jesus said that all other commandments depend on these two commandments. In other words, he's saying everything that you have learned about God, everything that you have learned about righteousness, everything that you have learned about forgiveness, about living right, about peace, about letting go of the past, everything that you have learned about community, heaven and hell, angels, demons, the word of God, everything that you have learned about spirituality depend on these two commandments. If you're going to walk your walk of faith, you have, you have to consider these two. And this is Jesus 
speaking, referring back to this age-old commandment. Now, why is it that these commandments that Jesus quoted have lasted so long, and yet we are still so reluctant to follow them? Because by the time Jesus quoted these commandments, they had been around for at least 1,500 years. That's the time from Moses to Jesus. At least 1,500 years, they were written down and passed along. And so nothing lasts that long unless it's true. Nothing lasts lasts that long unless there's some empirical evidence that it is true. It, It wouldn't have lasted that long simply by religious piety. And so they've lasted. And then from Jesus to us, another 2,000 years. So these commands have been around for about 3,500 years. They've lasted. They've stood. And we go back to them and we quote them. But still, with every generation, we still resist. We still have difficulty following them. Why? I think it's because of uh, what... The scripture calls the tension between the spirit and the flesh. And Alini shared a great message three weeks ago about that. This tension that we have between the spirit and the flesh. So today I want to I wanna do something a little bit different. Typically we do topical messages, but I want to go on a verse-by-verse exploration of a passage. It's a shorter passage, but a passage in Leviticus where... Basically, Moses writes down God's law, but it's more of a how to love God and how to love your neighbor as yourself. And I believe that if we do that, we will have a better understanding on on how to be a good neighbor. But uh, before we do that, let me give you a little bit of a timeline up to this passage. So we start with Abram, right? Abram in the scriptures is called the father of faith, is the man who... Everything originated with him. He was a Chaldean. He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. And he, he, his dad uh, was on his way to Canaan. But halfway through, they stopped. And Abram was just in the halfway to Canaan, just living with his parents. And at the age of 75 years old, God says, all right, man, it's enough. You got to move out. You've been with your family. And you're 75. I mean, you're talking about failure to launch. 75 and still living with your parents. You, you got to, you know, nothing wrong with living with family, but you, you have to get a hold of it. <laughs> so God says and calls him out. He had already some cattle and, and some business. He had people working for him. And so Abram goes out, right, into this adventure that God calls him to. And God promises there will be a nation that will come out of you. But Abram has one child. He becomes Abraham. God changes his name, which means father of many nations. And he has one child of the promise, Isaac. And so Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. Esau and Jacob, they're twins. And Esau uh, has 12 sons. Oh, sorry, Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, Jacob, uh, and, and out of these 12 sons is where the 12 tribes of Israel uh, form. But one of Jacob's sons was left for dead in a ditch. His name is Joseph. And Joseph ended up 
rising from that terrible situation and becomes the second person in command in Egypt. Egypt was the superpower of that time. And so as Joseph is ruling Egypt, just under Pharaoh, who was basically the king of Egypt, there's a famine that hits spread wide in the land. And now Joseph's family, uh, his parents' family, Jacob and his 12 sons and daughters, they need to find food. So they come to Egypt and they have this big moment as a family. They're reunited. But that's the moment when the Israelites move into Egypt. So you wonder, how did they become slaves in Egypt? It's because they had it good in the beginning. Joseph set them up. They had their own land and they had favor. But then what happened? Joseph died. And years passed. Many years passed. And Joseph told his family, right before he died, he said, Listen, God spoke to him to me. We're not going to be in this land forever. There will be a time when he's going to move us back into the land of Canaan, to the promised land. When that happens, take my bones with you because I do not belong in this land. So 400 years later, about 400 years uh, pass, and up comes a boy named Moses. His name is Moses because he was drawn out of the river. There were, it's more to the story, but to keep it succinct, uh, they were trying to save him from death. He's in the river. The Pharaoh's daughter gets enamored with this baby in a basket in the river and brings him to the palace to be raised in the palace. So Moses, a Hebrew, is raised as an Egyptian royalty. And in the palace, he learns about government. He learns about uh, the state. But he is living in this tension. Who am I? Am I Egyptian? Am I a Hebrew? Am I Egyptian? Am I a Hebrew? By the time he turns 40, he was 40 years old. The th things have gotten really bad for the Hebrew people. They are enslaved. Pharaoh is really pressing on them. And, and Moses sees one of his Hebrew brothers get abused and beaten by an Egyptian soldier. And so Moses kills that Egyptian soldier. And because he kills the Egyptian soldier, he becomes now, he is charged with treason and he has to run away for his life. He runs to the desert and he is in hiding in the desert. He takes on a wife, he becomes a shepherd and he's just hiding for another 40 years. And when he's 80 years old, he sees a burning bush that catches his eye. And in the burning bush, the voice of God comes to him and calls him to go back to Egypt and rescue God's people. And Moses says, no way, no how. I am not doing it. It's a very interesting passage. I find it actually to be quite comical because God has to convince Moses. God negotiates with Moses and actually does a fair bit of convincing. Finally, Moses says, okay, I'll do it, but only if my brother comes along with me. Because if I'm going down, he's got to go down too. I need a fallout guy. <laughs> I need a fallout guy. So Moses and Aaron go to Egypt, and you know the famous line, he comes up to Pharaoh, and as God says, let my people go. Let my people go, right? Yeah, baritone. 
And Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. You're not going anywhere. I'm not going to lose my laborers. Ten plagues later, though, he says, okay, you guys can go. And so Moses now goes from being a shepherd in hiding to a man leading 600,000 people, more actually, through the desert. And these people, they had spent 400 years in Egypt. Remember, they were not Israelites who had just kind of gone by Egypt really quickly. 400 years is a long time. From 400 years shapes your culture, shapes your idea of society, shapes your values, shapes your principles, shapes your worldview. So these are people who have been promised by God to Abraham to be a godly nation, an example of God on earth. And yet they've been cultured by Egypt. And Egypt was not godly. Egypt was not holy. Egypt discriminated. Egypt enslaved. Egypt was, uh, was ruthless. And it had many, many idols, many gods. They practiced idolatry. And now God is using Moses' leadership to reshape the minds of the people. To rescue them and reshape their heart. To turn them into a nation. They had never been a nation. To turn them into a godly nation. It had ne they never had a constitution. They never had a body of laws. They never had any of that. So Moses becomes their leader. He becomes their president, their congressman, senator, their judge, their intercessor, their pastor, their priest. He becomes every, every, all of those positions of leadership to the people and he, he begins to pass a series of laws on behalf of God as he receives from the Lord he begins to declare that begins to declare them to the people God's standard to address issues and problems that they are facing now when you open a Bible in the beginning of the Bible we see Genesis through through Deuteronomy these five books that for us is just a few pages on what we consider a book but this is a library an ancient library that we have so much access to and these first five books are called the Torah the law of God given to the people it was really Israel's constitution and they've lasted in fact it's the basis for the US Constitution and this is the body of laws that God gave Moses Moses and it's the context, basically the how-to on how to love God and how to love your neighbor. See, we don't have in our law that we shall love our neighbor. Right? This is our ethics, our morals, that we, we just assume that it's normal because of our Christian overarching birth as a nation. Now we're obviously we're not going to get into the details of all that, but there, there's, a, there's an underlying idea that, yeah, it's good to be nice to people. But in, 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 in the Old Testament, for the Israelites, that was God reshaping their minds through legislation. And so that's what we're going to explore today. I want to go to a passage in Leviticus that 
there are different forms and shapes of this throughout the Torah. But this is one of the passages that one of the first ones where Moses kind of spells out what, what the Lord of God, the law of God, God really speaking through Moses uh, on how to love God and then how to love people. So it starts Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1. It says this, And the Lord God spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So this is the very first expression and and foundational thing that we got to keep in mind. You shall be holy holy for i am holy in other words you ought to set yourself apart you ought to make an effort to be pure to be blameless every single day that should be your goal that should be your effort to be holy to be blameless to be pure hearted the first concern you should have is this be holy now think about how many social problems in the world would be avoided, we wouldn't have to deal with if all of humanity practiced this. If we all were daily striving to be holy, we would not have to deal with murders, violence, theft, oppression, abuse, lying, cheating. Sometimes we think that being holy is to help our relationship with God, and it does. Sometimes we think that being holy is about your religious experience, that this is a church thing, it's a church talk that only helps us when we pray on Sundays, maybe at church. But being holy helps society more than it helps God. Do you know that being holy helps you being holy helps your marriage more than it helps your church? You being holy, bless you, you being holy, it helps you. It helps your career. It helps your outcome. It helps the outcomes of your life more than it helps me. Sometimes we put holiness into this spiritual box, but it's really about improving your life. Next verse, he continues, every one of you, these are still the words of God uh, coming through Moses, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Notice there's a hierarchy of value. First, you ought to be holy. First, you ought to be like God. I am holy for God is holy. I, I should aim to be like him. Then, I ought to honor my mother and honor my father, honor my parents, and keep the Sabbath. Now, God is about family. That's what we learned from this scripture right here. That God is about family and he is about honor. The family unit is important. And when the family unit is healthy, when there's, there's health in the family, the relationship between you and, and your family is not only going to strengthen you, but it's going to help you avoid future pain and suffering. We tell our kids all the time. Our counsel to you, the reason why we are specific and why sometimes we are stringent and, and, and we are uh, strict is what they call. It's not because we want to rule over you. It's not because we're trying to punish you. It's not because we're trying to control you. We're trying to give you wisdom 
to make good decisions. That's what we tell our kids. We're trying to give you wisdom so that you don't have to fight the same battles we fought. Don't you worry. You will have your own battles that we can't help you with. You're going to have your own challenges that your generation is going to face that we can't help you with. But insofar as it depends on us, set, we are trying to set you up so that you can start ahead of us. So that you can start avoiding all the things that we had to discover for ourselves. So we honor, yes, because we love. We honor because our parents have endured so that we could benefit. But we also honor so that we can stand on their shoulders and move the family line forward and move the, the history of our family forward so that it can be better. Now you may say, J.D., what if my parents are not worthy of honor? What if my dad left us and I don't even know him or if my family uh, is abusive and, and, and they're broken and they're dishonest and, and what do I do? Well, you still follow the hierarchy of value. You honor insofar as your ability to be holy doesn't get corrupted. You honor as long as your ability to be uh, like God doesn't get disturbed. You know, my dad, my dad, uh, he's an awesome man. And he was raised by a father that was not, was not really a loving father. Uh, I, I've shared here before that my grandpa on my dad's side was a drunk. I don't have any memories of him not being drunk. And as after I grew older, I realized hearing stories from other people that he was abusive to my grandma. And my dad was always there to intervene. Now, my father, this is how he honored his dad. He never passed his grievances along to us kids. He never complained about his dad. He never demeaned his dad to us. He never said a word. He didn't compliment him. He didn't cover, you know, he didn't, he just never said anything. And whenever he got a little bit, he did a little bit better in life, my dad, he was able to give his father a home because his father couldn't even afford a home. So he gave, he put a, a roof over his father's head and I remember whenever we would go to the grocery store us kids we would push two carts and everything that my dad would buy for us as a family he would buy for his dad and and we would always go to my father uh, and my grandpa's house drop off groceries for them because my my grandpa you know this is how my dad understood to honor his father and God blessed him for it did did my grandfather deserve it no but he honored him unto the Lord. He said, God, I'm going to honor him unto you. And in that way, what did my dad do? He broke the curse. We, we don't have any rancor. We don't have any animosity. We don't carry those, those weights because that's how those things get passed down. The anger that you drive, the, the, the disappointment, it, it gets passed down that way. My dad broke the curse, and we get to raise our, chi our children like my parents raised us. And if you don't have a father or a mother, if you're in that circumstance where you don't really know your parents, honor the spiritual fathers that God has pl placed in your life. Because in the family of God, there are spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers that can fill in some of that that presence that you need as, as, as a father and a mother. So that's the honoring your parents part. And then God says, keep my Sabbaths. 
Now that means six days, you have six days that we work. And God is asking, one day a week, you got to set it aside. One day a week, you got to set it aside to disconnect and to focus on God. See, the Sabbath principle has been recognized by psychologists, by corporations, by productivity experts as, as a very valuable practice. In fact, some of the corporations now, they're instituting days of rest additional to the weekends that you get. Uh, and, and some Christian companies do that too, like Chick-fil-A, also known as God's Chicken, right? They are, everybody knows that, closed on Sundays, right? Yo, my Chick-fil-A. No, we don't do that. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. And for every market that they are in, they beat their competitors in profitability. Virtually every market. Even though they practice the Sabbath. Even non-religious people now are talking about a day of rest. Now, the Sabbath, let me make it clear. The Sabbath is not a day for you. Sabbath is a day for the Lord. And then that's, that's all God asks of you. One day. But even then, it's, not, it's for Him. But you get all the benefit. Because you're not going to make God holier. You're not going to make God wiser. You're not going to make God bigger and greater. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-holy. But what it does... It, it gives you a chance to be more like him. So what happens sometimes is this, right? We all give of our time to our companies, our occupations. You go to work tomorrow. You're going to give of your time to them. And sometimes we give our time and we feel like we're, it's not really for us. That's the time for work. And so we get to a point where we say, I just need a day for myself. Have you ever said that? I just, I just need a day. I need a day for myself. And that's good. I, I'm, I feel like I'm there all the time. But a day for yourself is not a Sabbath. Sabbath is a day for the Lord. It's a day where you disconnect from your worries. You disconnect from your preoccupations. And you focus on higher things. It's a day where you, you can read, worship, produce even in your home. But unto the Lord. Why? Why? Why is that important? It recalibrates your heart. It recalibrates your mind. It's, it's a process for you to land your mind and in, in, in your heart to what is holy and to what is godly. And if we don't do that, our earthly troubles can become so big. And over time, we think, man, what's happening? Why am I feeling so anxious? Why is my mind so preoccupied? Why can I not really connect to life to the fullest? It's because we have not given God the time of day. And so if we do that every week, that every week there's a rhythm to it. God is saying just once a week, take a time to disconnect from your troubles, to take your eyes off your worries and connect to me. And I believe, you know, Sunday is part of it, right? Being here together is part of it. You're doing it right now. And when you do that, your mind recalibrates and, and, re and it re-engages. Chapter, uh, verse 4, he says, Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves uh, any gods of cast metal. Now remember, I, for I am the Lord your God. Now remember, these guys came from Egypt and idols, they, they had idols for everything. 
uh, this idea of having one God is it was brand new to them. Everybody had multiple gods. So God is saying, no, no, you don't need any of that. You don't need any of those concerns. Once you set yourself apart and, and you decide to be holy, once you're honoring your parents and, and you honor the family and, and you set a day aside for me, remember, don't, don't worship anything else. Don't make anything else the ultimate. And the word for us in our secular uh, context, right, is anything else that you make the most important thing thing can become an idol in your life. So it's not necessarily that you're going to put up an image in your house as much as you will sacrifice the important things like holiness, like time with family and honoring your parents, like the Sabbath. And you're going to put sacrifice those at the altar of anything that could be an idol, like work, money, career, ambition, things that can take your heart and, and point your life in the wrong direction. God is saying, don't do that. So this is how we see God first, right? These, this is the how-to on, how, on, on loving God. And then he progresses on loving your neighbor because once you open your heart to love God, that's when you can open your eyes to see your neighbor and really love your neighbor with the love of of God. And so now the laws will begin to address our relationship with our neighbors. I'm going to skip verses 5 through 8 because in those verses he talks about peace offerings. So we're not going to go through those verses uh, just for the sake of time. But we're going to go to verse 9. And here's what he says on verse 9. This is what God says. Verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. See, the first thing we notice here is that God is not talking to the poor. He's talking to people who have land who have fields, and who have vineyards. And so there's, a, there's an implicit idea that if you love God, if you honor Him, if you're holy, if you, if you honor the family, and if you keep the Sabbath, that that will produce blessings in your life. That that will, that will, that will, that will increase your life. But to translate this passage to our 2023 reality, it means this. If you have a job, that's your vineyard. If you have a, a, an income, that's your fruit. If you have a career, that's your field. And what God is saying to the people and what he's saying to us is he's teaching us not to consume everything, not to be a consumer. Because the moment you, you turn your mind and, and you become a consumer, instead of producing love, you consume everything. You begin to consume the things that you're supposed to nurture. Including relationships, including uh, time with God. You come to church, you pray, and your notion is just to consume. God, give me. God, I need this. God, oh, I need a blessing. I need encouragement. I need faith. I need hope. I need, and you become a consumer of everything. So what God is saying is, hey, in your mindset, don't be a consumer. consumer and don't be stingy. Set aside resources on purpose. 
Set aside, in our, in our case, not just grapes on the ground, but actual cash, money, on purpose to bless people that you encounter. Have a money set aside that you can bless the homeless, you can bless the immigrant, you can bless the poor, you can bless the person in need. So that when somebody comes up and has a need, you're not just praying for them, but you're answering their need. You're the blessing that they need. You've been blessed with the job. God has given you the, the breath in your lungs. So he's saying, don't just see for yourself. Don't just look at your career as something that's yours alone. Don't just look at the resources that you've gathered as your own possessions for your consumption so that you can be great. Look at others and consider the poor and the needy especially. He continues, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So this is about valuing people and valuing God more than things. This is about not allowing your hearts to get corrupted. It's about integrity. It's about making sure that your word matters. In fact, we should, we should set a goal to have a reputation where people know that our word counts. You don't have to swear to God. You don't have to swear by anybody's grave. Because if you do that, it means that sometimes you don't speak the truth. So what God is dealing here, he's saying, hey, your word should be credible. You should set yourself apart. People should know that you don't lie, that you are believable. And one thing that will corrupt our hearts and will corrupt our reputation more than anything is lying. Lying is terrible. Lying destroys your moral compass. You lose direction when you lie. This is because we were made for the truth. We seek truth. We want truth. And when we lie, we betray ourselves. We become less and less capable of seeing and interpreting reality with clarity. Because we begin to believe our lies. The more we tell lies, the more we believe them. And we can see that in society today. There are all of these alternative realities because people have believed and lies, either that they were told or they tell themselves. And before long, what happens is you won't even know the truth anymore. And you will feel lost. And when you're lost, you're not free. When you're lost, you're bound. So if the truth sets you free, lies keep you bound. And that's why God is saying, don't lie. Don't lie. He continues, you shall not oppress your neighbor... Or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. People used to get paid daily. They were daily, daily, daily laborers. And people, because they used to get paid each day, some people would infringe on that right and say, hey, I'll pay you tomorrow to make sure that they would return to work. And God is saying, no, don't infringe on their freedom of dignity by holding their wage until the next day. If they show up for work, great, but you, you pay them for their job. It's not your money, it's theirs. So this is pretty straightforward. There's not much to explore here. It's God saying, I'm not for oppression. Pay the laborer. 
right? And he continues. You, you, do you see how specific God ha- gets here on how to be a good neighbor and how to love others? You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall fear the, your God. I am the Lord. In other words, don't take advantage of people who are disadvantaged. Especially if they have a disability. Do not take advantage of it. Now, I want you to imagine. This is like God is speaking to 600,000 people plus. They were bound to just cruising through the desert. They were bound to have people with disabilities. And in their culture, what we see here is that God is trying to fix a mentality that people with disabilities are less than. That they are to be made fun of. That they are useless. No, don't do that. God is standing up for those who are disadvantaged. And he's saying, he's coming in defense of the weak. He's saying, if you mistreat them, you have to deal with me. I am the Lord. You shall fear God as you you deal with people that are in disadvantages. So that for us is really important. They we keep in mind that any person who has a disability, any person who has difficulty, whether it's mental or physical, we ought to come with the mind of God and the heart of God to bless them, to be uh, God's love for them. And that's how we fear the Lord. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. In other words, don't make moral judgments based on wealth. And we have that, a lot of that uh, nowadays, right? God is saying, don't favor the rich, but also don't despise the rich. Don't favor the poor, also don't despise the poor. You should treat every person according to their actions. And you should treat them according to their character. How do you know? If the blessing of God hasn't made them rich and that's why they're wealthy. How do you know? You don't know. So we ought to to approach every situation with sensibility. Because God is a God of justice. He's a God of justice. Verse 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. In other words, don't tell stories that are not yours to tell. Don't gossip. Don't jump to conclusions and then share the conclusions as facts. Hello. Don't be, for, don't be a force to destruction of your neighbor. Don't be a force to the destruction of your neighbor when you can be a force for their rescue. And then he closes it. Chapter, uh, verses 17 and 18, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. I'm just going to let that simmer a little bit. You shall not hate your brother and your sister in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him or her. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So loving your neighbor as yourself is the, is the culmination. It's the conclusion. Like Jesus said, it is the, where everything else depends. How do we keep from doing all the things that God said do not do? You love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you know, don't hate your brother in your heart. In other words, talk, reason, debate, 
Don't hate. Find common ground. Because it is a sin to hate your neighbor. It's a sin to hate your neighbor. See, we're all called to see our neighbors, to be considerate. And I want to encourage you today with this scripture. Because sometimes we need, we need to just get to the, into the weeds of it and, and reframe our minds and understand what we are called to do. What we, the, shine, the light that we are called to shine. Now, can you imagine the kind of world we would have if everybody practiced these things? The kind of families we would have. The kind of neighborhoods we would have. The kind of communities we would have. I believe that that's what God is calling us to do. See, we, we, we think we think top-down in, in societies like ours. We think that if we, change, if we put a good president in power, then everything will be better. One man. Or maybe, maybe if we have a good Congress, everything will be better. Or maybe, maybe a governor or a mayor. That's not how God operates. He operates from the inside out. The way that God sees renewal of our nations, the renewal of our of our states and cities and neighborhoods starts with you, your heart. Inside your heart, you becoming this light, you becoming an example, and you raising the bar in your family and becoming an example for them to follow. You raising the bar at your job and becoming an example for them to follow. You raising the bar in your neighborhoods and becoming an example for them to follow. And that's how renewal happens. And I believe that God is calling us to be a light in dark places right here in Stanford and region. And we have people who come all, from all over, from all the way from Bridgeport down to Yonkers and, and that region, like that come to congregate here in this church. I have people that drive in from the Bronx sometimes. And so there's a, there's a wide sphere of people that you influence, that you lead. And that God's calling us to be good neighbors, to affect change ourselves. Don't wait for people in authority. You be the people in authority because you bring the presence of God into your families and your neighborhoods. And it starts right here. God is calling us to do this. It starts with us loving God by practicing those things, by being holy, pursuing holiness, honoring our elders, keeping the Sabbath rejecting idols, and then starts with us loving your neighbor as ourselves, which means to see our neighbors, to see them, because love sees, and to bind ourselves to them in a way that, that we, we, we want to restore them and not cast them away, in a way that we don't take advantage of them, that we don't approach people with ulterior motives, with selfish motives, that we don't, we don't oppress people, because we have more power than them. But that we elevate people and we love people because we see them as a child of God and we see God's potential in them and we see what God can do through them. I believe that if we do this as a family, as a church, as a people of God, we will be a catalyst for uh, change in our families, in our neighborhoods. Do you believe it? Amen. Amen. Let's be good neighbors. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you have a prayer request, a question about faith, or would like to find out more information, visit us at connectcommunity.org. 
Don't forget to subscribe and share. See you next time.